0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Rashad Robinson is busy. He's president of Color of Change, the nation's largest racial justice organization, when it seems that every political and policy issue touches on the group's mission. Voting rights, police reform, inequities illuminated by COVID-19 and the country's response to it, the effectiveness of anti-racism efforts in tech, Changing representation when it comes to race in Hollywood. You get the idea. Today, we're going to bore in on the fight that so many believed was over, voting rights. It is a core mission for Robinson's organization that has more than 7 million members who are building power for Black communities. So let's get to it. Welcome to Equal Time, Rashad Robinson. So I just wanted to begin with voting rights. Okay, I know you're a spokesperson also for Voting While Black and Color of Change PAC. Tell us about what they're calling Jim Crow 2.0 laws and why we're still in this fight.
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that the status quo before these set of laws was already bad. You know, you already had a situation of manufacturing inequality and a whole bunch of places where the the machines that were sort of on their last leg are already broken would be the machines that were put in Black communities. There were long lines in our communities and and short lines in other communities. There were a whole set of barriers that people were already facing. Um, And despite those barriers, people overcame. They stood on long lines. They followed rules that were designed um, to produce unequal outcomes and still sort of over participated and this is the same thing we saw you know back in 2008 where people waited on long lines and then after they overperformed and elected obama we watched as you know discriminatory voter id laws popped up around the country you can vote with your gun license but you can't vote with your student id like the texas law said and so this is Nothing new. You know, what's happening now in Georgia is that they've created long lines. Now they want to make sure that you can't give people food or water now that they're standing on the long lines they've actually created. And so it is just more and more barriers in the way of people being able to express their will for a better future, which is exactly what voting is all about in a democracy giving people a voice to express their will, regardless of whether they are privileged or vulnerable. In the majority or the minority, or in favor or out of favor with whoever may be in power.
0: We well, just talked about that a little bit. What your opponents know or don't know. Why are they being litigated now?
1: We are in a we are in a place where there's deep demographic changes in this country, and they've been um, part of part of a long um, span of you know if you can't uh, convince people to vote for you then you should actually pick who gets to vote. And this is what uh, the Republican strategy has been, right? Rather than trying to appeal to enough people to um, you know, win elections fairly, they have to um, ban some people from actually being able to vote in the first place.
0: Well, I'm looking at these numbers from the Brennan Center and they keep multiplying. It seemed like just last week it was saying there was 200 and some bills. Now they're saying... There have been more than 360 bills with restrictive voting provisions in 47 states. So can you help our listeners, Rashad, understand how that is possible in 2021?
1: You know, it's possible the same way that it was possible to have Donald Trump as president saying some of the things that he was saying. The same way it was possible for Mitch McConnell to steal a Supreme Court seat. One year, say one thing about whether or not They, you give, you you held hearings for Supreme Court justice in the last year of a presidency. And then the next time you make up a whole different excuse that has nothing to do with the last sort of set of uh, quote unquote facts that you laid out. Um, This is the strategy. It is um, not hiding anything about the role of holding on to power. And so these laws that are popping up all around the country are about um, people who have power doing everything they can possibly do to hold on to that power. And um, and we're going to see more of it and we have to block it. But the fact of the matter is, is this is why the Voting Rights Act was so important. Because um, you actually need federal oversight when you're dealing with elections. And you need um, the ability and accountability of federal infrastructure to ensure that in local communities and in statewide elections you don't have um these type of attempts to simply cut out huge swaths of taxpayers from being able to be part of the election huge swaths of eligible voters and to then shift change what consistently change what eligibility may look like right this is um you know what this is all about and you know as a Uh, grandson, great-grandson of sharecroppers, as someone who has um, been part of a family that has um, had to, at every turn, fight and show up to um, get a little bit more of what should have been rightfully ours in the first place in terms of our ability to participate. Um, What we know is that without um, strong rules and without strong accountability and structures to enforce those rules, um, there will be more and more attempts uh, to block Black people's votes because um, Black people have proven that, you know, we can, we can shift um, outcomes of elections.
0: I want to drill down a little bit on this Georgia bill because, yeah, I was looking at this deep dive that the New York Times just did, and these are some serious changes. They're going to have less time to request absentee ballots, strict new ID requirements for absentee ballots, It's illegal now for election officials to mail out absentee ballots to all voters. Drop boxes still exist, but barely. And of course, as you mentioned, misdemeanor for handing out food and water. And then the really part of of, um, the secretary of state being removed as a voting member of the state election board after they got upset because uh, the secretary of state wouldn't change. And these folks having uh, the legislature empowered to go into certain counties and suspend their results.
1: This is exactly the type of sort of root structures that we're dealing with that will produce a whole set of um, unequal uh, results and, um, and behaviors from those in power that will uh, block uh, people's participation. And, you know, the adding sort of uh, uh, criminal punishments for people who are trying to help folks um, engage in the process. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, the folks who stormed the Capitol, many of them were hearing won't even serve any time. Um, This and and some Republicans around the country were calling these people patriots in some circles. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that We've got patriots who want to help people get to the polls, help elderly, help folks who are dealing with long lines that are manufactured, and those folks are now going to be criminalized. For folks who are sort of watching this and they are sort of wondering, you know, um, you know how we got here, um, I think we got here by ignoring all those other signs along the road. All the other attempts to um, suppress the vote, to um, not um, allow all people to participate, to um, change the rules in the final quarter in order to um, um, protect the status quo. All of that led us to here, where this is, these are the final throws of folks that see themselves losing power and want to hold on to it as long as possible. You know, Black people are not the majority in this country. But this summer, this past summer, racial justice became a majoritarian issue, right? From the upticks in voter registration to what people said on polls to the fact that many people thought the best we could do was clap outside of our windows or uplift investigative journalism. It was racial justice that powered um, multiracial groups of people into the streets to raise their voices and demand for more, push people into their jobs. But what we know is presence without power doesn't actually move us forward. And so now what we need is for all the people who this summer spoke up, who had conversations, who maybe read a book that they never read before, like all of the things that you did along the way, you watched a a YouTube or a um, Zoom gathering, Um, you had conversations with someone in your life about race to recognize that this is the rubber beating the road. This is how it actually plays itself out. And this is where we need you more than ever to speak up, stand up and push back.
0: So we're here in Georgia and this voting bill is now facing some serious backlash from activists and corporations and even Major League baseball. Do you think that this actions by these companies will make a difference? And what is your strategy uh, at Color of Change as these bills multiply and move forward? I think what
1: Major League Baseball and what I think will be happening from other sort of conferences and events over time sort of will be important and it will be happening. I think the statements from Delta and Coca-Cola are, um, are weak and uh, far too little, um, far too late. Meaning that um, as someone, like I said, who does a lot of work around corporate engagement, around corporate accountability, I know what it looks like when a corporation actually cares about something and they don't make a statement saying that they are sort of disappointed after the bill passes. Uh, Multinational corporations put their thumb on the scale way before the bill passes. And in fact, they have fought for and designed all sorts of laws that allow them to actually do that just that. And so in the moment where they could have done it, they were actually silent. And then they wait. they, then they wait till after the bill passes and they use terms that feel equivalent to the sort of um, mother or who you see in the store, the father you see in the store that doesn't quite have control of their child. And they're like, Johnny, please stop. Johnny, please stop. Johnny, please stop. And Johnny's keep doing what Johnny's going to do. And then Johnny does it. And they say, Johnny, if you do it one more time, And Johnny does it and they're like, and what? And so this is what we are dealing with. There's a a bunch of little Johnnies in um, in the state legislature and a whole set of corporations that have said stop, but have not committed to not still donating money to Johnny, have not committed to not supporting PACs and political institutions from Johnny. And Johnny will keep going from state to state. Doing this over and over again because they know that um, the ends will justify these sort of ends will justify the means.
0: Yeah. Do you think some of these states, looking forward, like uh, the Arizonas and the Texases, will look at it? It will affect them at all?
1: I do think that we are in a place right now where there's a lot of elected officials that have already made up their mind that this is the path they're going down, and this is how they stay in power because they don't actually have ideas anymore that are winning. And this right now makes brings us to what's happening federally. And so I remember, you know, back during the days where we had in-person meetings of, you know, putting on, you know, my, my favorite suit and, and heading over to meet with uh, Senator Schumer um, shortly after Stacey Abrams said she wasn't going to run for the Senate. And I had, you know, the meetings that I normally have with Senator Schumer, where we, you know, we'll talk about a set of issues. Um, I live in New York, so we have a a couple of good jokes. And this one happened um, in Washington in his office. And, you know, we we were just, we were talking about a bunch of things. And I tipped down a list of issues. And I was there with a colleague. And so we were there. We talked about, you know, everything from tech accountability to criminal justice to voting to the economy. And we just had a bunch of issues that were priorities. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Rashad, all those things that you're talking about here, you know what you need in order to make that possible. And I said, what, sir, what do I need? He said, you need Leader Schumer. You need Leader Schumer to make that possible. You know, and you know, I laughed to myself. I smiled out loud, but he was right. There was no path to those policies without uh, a leader of the Senate that was actually going to put them on the floor and work to make it possible. He did, but he didn't say to me, you need Leader Schumer with 60 votes. He said, you need Leader Schumer. And, And now I can't go back to communities in 2022 and with some full campaign to explain the filibuster to people. Like, that is not going to be what I do to explain why the filibuster prevented criminal justice reform, prevented a voting rights act that would supersede the sort of federal, the state level, um, sort of racist, uh, bills that blocked our ability to get to the polls. And so all this stuff is happening at the state level. But that is why we need the federal government to step in the same way the federal government had to march children into schools in Georgia, the same way the federal government um, has had to get involved when um, corporations were um, uh, committing wage theft, Um, the same way the federal government has had to get involved time and time again around voting and voting rights specifically. And that right Um has to be part of that, has to be part of that
0: work. What is the voting uh while black and the uh, color of change pack? Are you working on these? Uh
1: yeah, so we're 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 actively pressing and pushing on um, you know, we're mobilizing our members to um um engage their representatives, particularly at color of change. Um, you know, we're obviously gonna be we're spending, you know, a significant amount of money. Um, you know, in the six figures on targeted, geo-targeted ads to mobilize employees to speak up um, and push back on what's happening and the ways in which their corporations are remaining silent. We're doing everything we can to make this um, an issue that people have more awareness of and they know who's on their side and they know who's not. And that we can sort of work to push and electoralize this. I am talking about the filibuster here to send a direct message that even in these conversations around the filibuster, none of this puts money in people's pocket, more justice and more safety in people's communities, um, more economic opportunities. It does none of those things.
0: Looking at all the things that's going on with voting rights right now, are you optimistic or pessimistic? So
1: I wake up as a pretty optimistic person. I come. From you know a family of people that have had to fight for everything, and you know if you're willing to fight, in some ways you have to believe that there's more possible on the other side. I just have so much experience of like reading and engaging in the stories of the past. Some really deep personal experiences with being you know at the at the foot of some of leaders who helped to make so much possible for me and, and, and this country, um, that, you know, optimism is in my blood. Now, it's not a blind optimism or a Pollyanna optimism. It's an optimism that is rooted in that nothing moves us forward and no change happens without the work. Um, but yeah, I believe that we can win. I believe that these attacks are a result of us winning, um, are a result of us having to overcome barriers that were intended for us to fail, but we, despite those barriers of long lines, despite those barriers of broken machines, despite those barriers that always make it so that our candidates have less money on election day or so many other things that sort of structurally make it harder for us uh, to sort of be fully represented, um, we we overcome. So I, I believe that, but, I want people to know that what we are facing right now is a threat. And, you know, if we get to, um, you know, election day 2022, and we haven't figured out a plan to deal with this, then I don't know um, if I'm going to be able to, like, hold on to the level of optimism that I have right now.
0: Yeah. Of course, I have to ask you with what's going on in Minneapolis right now, and talking about legislation, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, um, you've got a comment. I wanna ask you on the Derek Chauvin trial. And the anxiety, it's kind of hopeful, anxious, traumatic, um, that's gripped so many Americans, particularly black Americans. Um, I'm a journalist, but I mean, it's, you can't watch it. Uh, And we've seen it all before. So what is it going to mean, if anything, about the chances for lasting police reform? Well,
1: you know, I think it's really important that we know that, you know, there's racism at the individual level, right? Racism that makes individuals feel that they can do things um, and or should do things that are racist and that that's what they do. And then there's the structural things that... Uh rewards, incentivize, gives people an out when they do those racist things. And then, of course, manufactures it at a structural level. And so we're we're seeing both those things play out, right? We're seeing Derek Chauvin and his behavior. We're also seeing sort of the impacts of uh racist policing systems that um, made um, his behavior acceptable for so long that we got to this point, right? All of the, you know, you have to imagine that this wasn't his one bad day on the job, that there was a lot of bad days for black and brown people who came across Derek Chauvin and Minneapolis. But what we're also watching is a police union pay for a defense that is solely focused on criminalizing George Floyd criminalizing the communities and making um, the jury and the public believe that George Floyd deserved to die um, and so we not only need legislation that's gonna you know hold police greater accountable, we actually have to work to divest from some of the policing that has harmed us for so long right you don't actually deal with guns with a whole bunch of impotent gun laws you have to reduce the number of guns. And if we are simply investing in policing in communities that are um, facing challenges and not investing in the things that keep people safe, that keep people whole, then we're not actually dealing with the challenges. And if we don't create real levels of accountability, um, but you know there are pieces um, of things that we are going to be fighting for, like ending qualified immunity, which allows police officers um, to be able to harm and hurt and never have to face any type of um, civil uh, prosecution, uh, all of these things are going to be important. Written rule change and unwritten rule change has to be part of this work, as well as ensuring that Derek Chauvin is held accountable. But Derek Chauvin held accountable alone doesn't actually create um, the type of structural changes that helps the next George Floyd.
0: Wow. I thank you so much for spending time with Equal Time, Rashad. Of course. Thank you for having me. So, what's keeping me up at night? April 4th, the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Knowing he was in Memphis fighting for living wages for workers. I am a man read the signs carried by sanitation workers. So many of the same issues. The same signs. The same marches in 2021. It's not surprising. With progress comes pushback, always but at a time of resurrection, should I hope? Should we hope? Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.